This is Good Faith Effort with Ari Lam. And here's your host, Rabbi Dr. Ari Lam. Hello, hello, and welcome to Good Faith Effort, the world's most dangerous Bible podcast, the podcast where we show you how the values and ideas of the Bible can illuminate the most important conversations in society, from politics to pop culture and beyond. And today, Good Faith fam, we have a pretty exciting one for you. We have with us entrepreneur, investor, fellow at the renowned Aspen Institute, founder of the amazing company Leap Learning, Ami Dror, and we're going to talk about learning the language of the future. So to set it up, we're right in the thick of talking about the book of Genesis these days. And I want to talk a bit about a pivotal moment in the narrative. It's actually one of the most enduring images in the history of culture, certainly in Western art from the Renaissance to modern film. And that's the image of Jacob's ladder. So let me set the scene for you. Jacob has just had to flee his home in the land of Canaan because his brother Esau was trying to kill him. And it's a long story, but the short of it is, this is another one of those instances in Genesis where the younger child is chosen by God over the elder child. So think about Abel over Cain, Isaac over Ishmael, and later Joseph over his brothers and so on. So anyway, Jacob's on the run and his brother, who's a master hunter, is tracking him down and he's attempting to kill him. And as he's fleeing, completely exhausted emotionally and physically, Jacob collapses onto the ground just as he's about to leave the Holy Land, and he falls into a deep, bone-tired sleep. Now, given everything that I've just told you, I think you'd assume Jacob would have a nightmare. Nope. Instead, he dreams that he can see a ladder reaching from the ground all the way up to the heavens, with angels ascending and descending it. And it's a powerful image of faith in a time of uncertainty that inspired artistic geniuses from Rembrandt to Chagall. But what's even more remarkable to me is this ancient Jewish tradition. It's centuries old. It was at that very moment, as soon as Jacob awoke from his dream, that he invented the evening prayer that Jews all over the world recite to this very day. How amazing is that? This was a time of darkness, both literally, it was nighttime, and figuratively, his own brother was hunting him down. And you'd think at a time like this, the best Jacob could do was hunker down and just try to survive. Right? Matters of the spirit should have been the furthest thing from his mind. But instead, he saw the darkness not as a crisis, but an opportunity. Because while night is when things get darkest, it's also a time when we dream dreams. It's a time to raise our eyes to the heavens and be thankful for the incredible world that we live in. And look, we've seen and heard all the doom and gloom. Oh, technology is ruining everything. It's going to destroy us. And oh, woe is us and social media. And look, we certainly shouldn't ignore the downsides to technological advance. But for my money... We're living in a time of unparalleled opportunity for spreading positive values in new and innovative ways. And it's a time where, especially in darkness, we could learn to dream. Of course, in order to do that, we need to embrace the world of tech and speak the language of tech. And so to unpack what that looks like, I brought on someone who's not just thinking about this, but actually doing this at the highest possible level. He's an entrepreneur, he's an investor, He's the founder of Leap Learning, the largest edtech company in the world that's teaching kids to code. He's Ami Drawer. Ami, thanks so much for being here. Thank you very much for having me here, Ari. So one of the ideas made famous, actually by the book of Genesis in particular, is the idea that humans are created in the image of God. And the question of what exactly this meant is something history's greatest figures have had to wrestle with, from Maimonides and Aquinas to Michelangelo and Immanuel Kant. 
But one fascinating interpretation that you find in some of the oldest Jewish commentaries on the Bible, actually written in Aramaic, is that the divine image is actually the human facility for language and conversation. And that's why I've been so intrigued by an idea that you've thought a great deal about, which is that we need to think about coding as the language of the futures, how we speak to machines. So can you explain a bit about what you mean by that? Sure. So language is the, the most basic tool we use. Uh, you can look at math as a language, and you can use English as a language, Hebrew, and any other language that you want. But if you look at all the devices that are around us, they all speak a language. We might divide them into different coding languages, but overall, it's something that I call robotish, which is the main language. The principles are the same. It's the way you give instructions to a machine. It's the way you teach a machine how to think. And it's the way you help a machine get better and better and better. And the principle is the same, actually. Even if you look at the last 50 years, it evolved like every other language, but still it's very, very similar principle. Now, we all use technology. We can then choose what we want to do with it. We can be just a passive user. Passive user will be somebody that's using an app. So that's a reader. Or you can even be somebody that actually makes an app. Again, I'm oversimplifying it. That's a writer. And if you know both skills, you can actually advance the, the communication. Now, if you look at jobs around us, almost everything, the percentage of time you spend every day, including what we're doing right now, everything we're doing right now, it's purely digital. So right now we are talking and there is a technological device that is using a software. Right. You're not in my wife's closet with me personally right now. Exactly. <laughs> so, you know, there is a machine that takes our ones and zero and convert and, and then filterize it and then stores it and then it will be used in order to distribute it. Now, somebody or actually thousands of people contributed to this and they wrote this code that we are using right now. So probably 60, 70, 80% of the day for some people, definitely young people, is uh, either reading or writing in a digital way, in a, in a robotish way. And when we started LeapLearner, it was very clear that you can divide the world into the people that are just readers, and to the people that can read and write, meaning create the technology. And the earlier you learn it, like every other language, you know, when you are young, when you're three years old, it's super easy to teach you four languages at the same time. When sadly, when you're 80, it's a little bit harder. Uh, same thing with robotics. So what we started to do all around the world is to teach very young kids how to code, something, by the way, that I was lucky to do as a child. And I'm always saying to those kids, it doesn't really matter if we teach you Java or Python or C++ or C Sharp. This is all meaningless. This is not the language. This is just a tool. But the way you're thinking, the way you're practicing it, that's something that eventually will take completely over everything that we do. Whether you want to be a farmer or a painter or you, know, you want to have your own podcast or you want to develop video games, the main language that you will use is this language. And that's what Sleep Learner is all about. So Leap Learner works with kids. And my question is, as someone who's been deeply involved in programming, I'm certain, with uh, adults of all ages, in addition to it just being easier to teach kids how to code or how to learn this language because your language facilities are sort of much more finely tuned when you're younger, what do you notice as some of the key differences in how either how children learn to code or insights that they have that maybe you wouldn't expect from an adult who's learning to code? 
So first of all, it's very different in every country. You know, we're working in China, in India, in the U.S., in Israel. There's a lot of cultural elements that, uh, uh, that we see that are very different in, every, uh, in each and every country. In some countries, it's obvious that, that for the parents that the kids should learn it and they are the pu- pushing them. In other countries, the, the parents are afraid that the kids are spending too much time with screens and they're actually shy of teaching them. So there is a cultural element. But there are some things that we notice that are very interesting. One of them will be gender. It's very clear right now, I hope it will change in the future, that if girls start to learn below the age of 11, 11 or about 11, it's very likely that when they will grow up, they will be more keen to deal with things like uh, computers and coding. Versus boys, even if they didn't touch a computer until the age of 11 and they were just exposed to it at 14, they will still do the same. The, the reason is cultural. The reason is that there is a certain age when it's not considered to be cool. And if you are exposed in a young age, you know how easy it is. And then when you go to high school or to college, you are more likely to, to take a coding lessons and to, to maybe become a coding major versus if you're never exposed to it and you say, oh, you know, this is difficult. So, so this is something we, we see uh, that is very critical, the concept of the early age. Another thing that we see, when kids uh, get into coding, they don't need teachers anymore. One of the best benefits of learning to code is because it's a language that evolves all the time. And as I said, anything that I'm teaching right now will be irrelevant in three years, except for the concept. Kids that want to seriously become very aggressive self-learners, they get to a point when they don't need teachers, they don't need a group, and they just learn online and they find their own way and the new technologies in order to develop those things. And that's very unique when you see it at an early age, when everything around you is kind of built in. You go to school, there is a teacher, you're supposed to do your assignment, etc. And suddenly, in the world of coding, we see it all the time that a child is like, you know, they outgrow their teacher when they are, when they are 12. And that's a magical thing to witness. Meaning kids, when they learn coding, can learn so fast that they outspeed any system we can build in order to teach them. Of course, not every child. So, but this is kind of generic. I can go regional if you want. Uh, it's, it's very different, but that's kind of the general answer. Well, actually, one thing that that makes me think of is you mentioned earlier that you guys are very active in India. I, I've recently, believe it or not, begun following a lot of accounts on Twitter people from India, scientists, political thinkers, academics, actors, what have you, just to try and learn more about Indian society, because I think it'll be such a, a huge part of our future. And one, one of the things that happens, I constantly find myself just like needing to look up like tons of basic stuff, which to be fair, I definitely expected. It's just a very different culture and, and non-Western. And leap learning, as you said, is really active now in India. So what have you learned about Indian society that you think most people say like in the West might not know, but should know? Hmm. So many things. You know, first of all, visit. That's my first advice. And then when you visit, don't be impressed by the poverty in the streets, but try to dive a little bit deeper. Uh, The Indian middle class is growing so fast and the kids of the middle class they are as educated as it gets. So we're talking about parents working in some, initially it was like outsourced companies. Now there is like a full ecosystem of startups. They make a very decent salary and they invest a lot in their kids' education. 
Indian kids are as smart as it gets. Now, I don't want to say this nation's kids are smarter than this nation's kids. <laughs> I think every child is smart and you can do it. But when you combine the discipline that we see in India with the kids, the performance is just mind-blowing. So we have in India kids in the ages of uh, 10 and 11 that in some cases you can hire them if you want to work in a high-tech company hmm. because they're generally curious. Now, if you look at the cultural heroes in uh, India, those are the people that start those startups. Those are the people that manage giant companies in the U.S. as well. And when your cultural heroes are engineers versus other countries like in the U.S., when in most cases, in some cases, the cultural heroes, for example, would be athletes or politicians or lawyers, so when your cultural heroes are engineers, more and more kids are being driven in there. And the result is a massive creation of knowledge and power and speed. So if you look right now at the tech ecosystem in India, the number of startups that are just like flying through the roof, it's amazing. And, you know, we also work a lot in China. There is a misconception that uh, for Western people that they look at other countries China, India, Nigeria, you name it. We think that they are trying to learn from us. But I can tell you right now that India is on the point when the Western civilization is actually starting to copy them. And for me, it's very interesting because I see where it starts. I work with the schools. I work with the first graders, second graders, third graders. I see how much they invest in science, in math, in language. And then when they go into coding and we work with them throughout the years, we are definitely not surprised when those kids get to 16, 18 or 20, they're starting their own companies. So India is fascinating in the, in the speed and the amount of engineers that India is right now generating in our space just shows you that they will lead the world together with China. It's interesting. I actually was just in D.C. I was speaking at an event and I took an Uber to the event. And the driver was an immigrant from Nigeria. And I had recently learned that apparently Nigerian Americans are like the most educated community in America, like per capita. Mm -hmm. And so I just was curious, like we got to talking and Uber driver, you know, somewhat elderly fellow and turned out he has three kids or maybe it was just three kids who were old enough to be in, in university, but all three of his kids were doing advanced PhDs, like one in biochemistry, one in biotechnology. And I remember thinking like, this guy is like my great grandfather, like also immigrant from Eastern Europe, poor, you know, struggled financially. And then his kids all got advanced degrees and really built some. I mean, you're right in terms of like, what are your aspirations? What is the cultural premium placed on learning and achievement? I mean, it's really amazing. Yeah, you're touching actually on a, on a very interesting point. Uh, one of the questions that I'm always being asked in China, in India, in Nigeria, is actually what's so special with Jewish people? Why Jewish people are you know, winning so many Nobel Prizes? I have a book about it. Why are they winning so many Nobel Prizes? And why do you see them in, like, in the places that you need advanced studies? And then always it goes to, is it the Talmud? Is it like religious studies? Is it like the principle of Heder? And, you know, those are all the questions. And my answer to them is, yeah, definitely there is something there. But more than anything, Jewish people had to be immigrants for so many generations. Being immigrants is part of us, that this flexibility. And what you see with the Nigerian immigration and Indian immigration and actually any immigration on the planet 
when they go to another country and they have the basics, they have the food on the table, they are willing to work so much harder. So everything you're telling me about Nigeria, of course, it's obvious, but I would assume that I will always prefer to hire an immigrant. And, and that's, for me, the biggest secret of Judaism. We were always immigrants in every country. We're never allowed to own properties, etc. So we always, like a lot of immigrants, they don't have any money to buy properties. And therefore, it forces you to use the brain. It forces you to find your own ways. And that's why, by the way, I'm a huge supporter of hiring immigrants wherever you are. And the outcome that you get from immigrants is the highest. And if you look at the kids of the immigrants, a lot of them are learning with us in any country. Wow. That's fascinating. We actually had on a previous episode of Good Faith Ever, we had Leah Bustan from Princeton, a major economist at Princeton, who actually just has a new book out now, Streets of Gold. Shout out to Leah on just, I believe, this very topic on immigrants and the strength of immigrant communities and their achievements and so forth. Really fascinating stuff. Actually, this this made me think, here's another thing I wanted to ask you, uh, where you're from. Israel has such a cultural openness to coding, cybersecurity and, and so forth. And it's the only country in the world that I'm familiar with where, well, it's one of the few countries in the world where military service is ubiquitous for obvious reasons. But still, it's like you think of, you know, elite military units in the U.S. that everybody knows about. It's like the Navy SEALs, Green Berets. It's like, you know, people who are hacking through a jungle, you know, same thing in Britain or in Germany, you know, like you have like the Royal Air Force, like Air Force units are big. Israel is the only country I know where like everyone in the country knows it's cybersecurity elite unit, like 8200. It's crazy. So what I was wondering is, you know, speaking of some of the particular strengths that different immigrant cultures, whether it's Nigerians, whether it's people from India or whether it's Jews might have, I'm wondering if Israeli openness to coding and engineering, software engineering has to do with the fact that Israel is a country that basically already speaks an invented language, right? It's based on a long tradition, obviously, but it's not much different than how computer code is rooted in a long tradition of mathematics and engineering. So what do you think about that? So definitely an ancient language. And if you look at the creation of Israel, so many people came from so many countries and they all had to adjust and learn different languages. So, you know, it's very common for us. Uh, definitely, if you look there to like my parents' generation, that you, you speak multiple languages, uh, etc. We also knew from day one, each one of us, we know that there's no market in Israel. Israel is too small. So you always have to think export. How do you think export? You need languages. So when you combine these things, language is a very easy uh, explanation to anybody in Israel. There's something that goes beyond, you know, we, we don't have resources, nat any natural resources in Israel. So the only natural resource that you have and you invest on will be the brain. So I'll give you an example from the army and why you call it cybersecurity units, but I will just call it technological units and all, and all that. Right. So, you know, you can have the best plane in the world, but if I can kind of hack your plane in midair, then your amazing weapon becomes my weapon. Right. Then you don't have a plane. I have a plane. <laughs> exactly. So, so this is the principle. Now, what we have to do because of it, you know, we are kind of in a hostile environment. Uh, you know, we are not very popular in our neighborhood. So we need to use whatever skills we have to deal with that. So there were times when we, you know, when it was more developing like tanks and planes when nobody else was, uh, was developing it. But now for the last decade, it's very clear that software is the way to do that. 
And if you look at the Iron Dome, Iron Dome is an AI system that protects me here in Tel Aviv if somebody shoots missile on, on the country. It's a combination of hardware, software, etc. So this is not a, a cyber intelligence unit, but a lot of very smart engineers had to develop, had to develop. So, so it's almost a survival. And, and if uh, in uh, the 1900s, if you had a violin and uh, you were an immigrant and you ran away from a pogrom, and you got to a little town in Europe and you started to play a violin and somebody will give you a few dollars or a few uh, zlotis at the time, right now, the way for you to survive is excel in technology. And that's what we've been doing in Israel. And to the credit of Israel, the changes are very fast. And we identify as something we need to do it. And I will also add, again, the concept of immigration. Because one of the secrets that uh, Israel have in point of technology is actually the Russian immigration of the 90s. Mm. You know, we, we talk about a lot of extremely talented people that came from Russia without knowing the language. And they knew that technology will be their way because guess what? Math is math. It's the immigration of Soviet Jewry to Israel. Exactly. Right. So even then, whenever somebody immigrates here to Israel later, Israel is extremely unique in this aspect. And I'm always saying in the world of coding, I started to learn coding at 10 year old, when I was 10 year old, nobody even knew what's coding. My mom definitely didn't know what's a computer, but she heard it's important. So she, you know, <laughs> she decided that she, I should have a computer because it's important. Coding was mandatory in Israeli high school, I think like in the late 90s, early 2000s. So Israel is very much ahead on that. And it does allow us to create special talent. And those people are our heroes. Yes, we definitely have heroes like the Green Parrots, but we also have heroes like the guys that develop Iron Dawn because, you know, they, they saved so many lives. Hold on just one sec. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. And we're back. Why is the kingdom of Bhutan underrated? <laughs> underrated? Why, why do you think it's underrated? Well, I don't think most people in the U.S. or I am know what the kingdom of Bhutan is. Bhutan is a very unique country because it's on the border between India and China. Mm. It's a kingdom. And the king there is one of the most impressive people I ever met in my life. And he sees his country not in the eyes of a GDP, but in the concept of happiness. They measure happiness. And so, for example, despite tourism being their major source of income, they limit tourism because they don't want tourism to destroy the environment. And industrial development can be very good to the economy, but it will also destroy the culture. So coding is a very interesting aspect because coding doesn't destroy the environment. It doesn't destroy the culture, and it does allow you to have an economical development. And when you have very enlightened monarch, I will say, uh, that decides that this is important for the country, he can make a decision that, and then within a month, every child in the country learns coding with lead learner. Uh, so that's something that is very special about Bhutan. One of the things that is very special about Bhutan, and in a general point of view, something that I advise all my friends, and especially my friends from the United States, is, uh, you know, every country you can learn things from. And uh, those countries that you don't know of, many times, they excel in so many things. So therefore, travel, exploring, meeting, and having an open mind to every country in the world is unique. You know, I helped to build a school in Sierra Leone, and I have a little startup in Sierra Leone that provide uh, services around the world. I can speak about it later if you want. And 
I can tell you that every time I, uh, I visit a tiny village which have no water, no running water, no electricity in the middle of Sierra Leone, I'm learning by far more than visiting New York. So that's as a general concept. So it's so funny that you say that. I've said this before, um, but you're saying it far more eloquently than I could. It strikes me as remarkable and a little absurd that especially in the U.S., but around the world, really. I mean, when we think of education, we think of it as something you do in a classroom or maybe if you're a little more progressive as something you do in a laboratory or as, you know, but we very rarely think about travel as an element of education. And it strikes me, certainly based on what you're saying, but I think in general, it strikes me that there's there are very few things you could do that are as educationally enriching as travel. So whether it's places like Bhutan, Sierra Leone, if you like, listen, Americans, you know, tend to be, uh, I think this is a stereotype, but probably a stereotype for a reason. I think Americans tend to be a little more provincial, uh, because we just travel less, maybe because we need to travel less. There's so much stuff here and America is, is a huge country and you could just travel around the U S and there's so much regional variety here already. But you know, if, if you had a close American friend who just wanted to, Learn by going, right? Rather than learn by doing. Learn by going. Where should they go? So before I give you global advice, I will start by saying you don't need to fly internationally. You can learn so much as going to another neighborhood in your home city, especially in the U.S., which is an amazing country of immigrants. You just need to go to the neighborhood that normally you will be afraid to go to because people are a little bit different than you and just go into the local shop. And, uh, and you will learn by far for more than what you learn in your own neighborhood in months. So this is the concept of going places. You know, it's almost like a lot of people come to me and ask me about business. How do you build businesses, etc. And I always say, just go across the street. There is like somebody that runs a little falafel stand. This guy probably <laughs> knows more business than me after all my years. <laughs> and this is true to your neighbors. Uh, you will find the knowledge exactly where you're not looking for it. So, so that, would be, that would be that. And based on the same principle, if I had to travel uh, internationally, I go to the countries when they are the most uncomfortable for me. So when you're from the US and you're going to London or to Australia, uh, you know, it's the same language. It's kind of, you know, it's a little bit different. You know, the cars are on the other side of the street, but it's not really different. Uh, you know, there's a lot of similarities. If you extend it a little more and you go to another country in Europe and, and, you know, and also you have a different language, maybe. But even in this country, if you go to a city that is full of foreigners, eh, not the same. But, and then if you extend it and you can see it in the way, by the way, Israelis travel after the army. Yeah, that's what I had in mind. Uh, almost every person in Israel after the army travel for one year will always go to the most remote places on earth. So we'll go to India, but we will not go to Delhi. We will go to North India or to the border of Kashmir and same every country. So I would say the more different, the more, uh, the harder it is for you to go there. You learn. If you always lived and you always had a comfy bed and an air conditioner, if you try to live for a month when you sleep on the floor with flies and mosquitoes around you, you might understand that there is a global problem with mosquitoes and maybe there is a way to, to solve it. And you'll always appreciate the bed that you have at home. So this is roughly the, the principle. The more different it is, the more attractive it is. That's beautiful. Uh, actually, so I think that brings me then to my last uh, question, which is you had extensive experience as a founder, but you've also have experience running an accelerator, sort of on the investor end of things. 
you know, most people think about founders and investors in the tech world as just kind of like part of the same ecosystem, and they are, but I think we also think of them typically as kind of having like the same skills, like they're inventive, entrepreneurial. What are the different skill sets that you need to be a founder versus a successful investor in the tech space? So first of all, despite being an investor, I define myself as a terrible investor. <laughs> I, I'm really bad at it. I'm pretty good impact investor, but I'm not a good investor. And uh, investors need completely different skills. They need to, to be passionate about money more than anything else, because that's what's their job. Their job is to take X and to return multiple Xs. And, uh, and the skill for that is, is very different. Yes, there are some founders that become investors, and there are some founders that become also very good investors. But as far as I could see, investing is a, is a completely, it's a, it's a financial game. It's a game of creating value in numbers, in money, versus uh, creating value in actual product. As a founder, what you want to do, you want to solve problems more than anything else. And you want, to, you want to do the impossible and you want to do it fast. You look at something and everybody will tell you, ah, it will never work or there is this problem and this problem. And despite everybody's telling you that, you decide to do it and you fail and you keep doing it. And you fail and you keep doing it. And, and then the company fails and you start another company. It's, it's almost like you, you need to be a master of failure. You need to love failing in order to become an entrepreneur and a founder. Something that, by the way, investors cannot fail, not even once. It's not even an option for them. So you create things, you fail, and eventually you have success. Now, everybody talks with you about the success. Nobody asks you about the 10 things you failed on the way. And I would say that founders, real good founders, are not motivated by money. They are motivated by creating, building, achieving. So so for me, it's a very, you know, I do both. In one thing, I think I'm pretty good. Uh, on the other end, I think I'm pretty terrible. Yeah, so choose. It's not the same thing. And, and you know, and founders love risks. Investors normally don't like risks. They're trying to control the risk. Amen. Ami, thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. Thank you very much. there's anything that this podcast is about, it's the love of learning and the type of learning that the Bible wants you to do through stories rather than systems, through experience rather than just contemplation is precisely the type of learning that Ami just talked about. The kind that exposes you to the variety of the human experience, sometimes makes you uncomfortable, forces you to ask big questions, and most importantly, encourages you, encourages us to believe that with God's help, we can indeed achieve the impossible. Anyway, thanks so much for listening. And if you enjoyed the pod, then please be awesome and head into Apple Podcasts or iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and give us a rating. Five stars only. Because it really helps people find the show. All right, that's it for now. This is Ari Lam making a good faith effort. I'll see you next time. Faith Effort was created and written by Ari Lamb. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice, because it really helps others find the show. Our executive producer is Josh Cross. The show is produced and edited by Paul Ruest. This is a Soul Shop podcast presented by B'nai Zion. Follow us on Twitter at GFaithEffort. Follow Ari at Ari Lamb and sign up for our email list at soulshopstudios.com slash goodfaitheffort. 
For more information about Soul Shop, follow Soul Shop on Twitter at Soul Shop Studios and on Instagram at Soul Shop underscore studios. And check out soulshopstudios.com. Studios.com.